Greg and Lori are out of town this weekend for a, a rare weekend away. I know Greg does not take many Sundays away. I, I think in the life of the church, both Greg and I have not taken very many Sundays outside of this church, partly just because there's not really anywhere else we'd rather be. Uh, at the beginning of the summer, Greg said, you know, I think you should take at least two Sundays this summer. And I just kind of thought, where, where would I go? <laughs> this is my, my family, and uh, I love being here. But I'm happy for Greg and Lori there up in the Twin Cities, enjoying a, a weekend there. And um, I'm missing them this morning as we conclude this series. But I, I'm so honored to be able to wrap up our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. This has been a good summer, hasn't it? I just, in conversation with so many of you, I've heard throughout the summer that you have greatly enjoyed and been edified and encouraged by the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's given us language, it's given us categories for thinking about our lives under the sun, to think about work and toil, to think about suffering and injustice and doubt, to, to think about the reality, the pain, the, the challenges of life under something higher than the sun under the sovereignty of God who made it all. And so this book has served us and edified us. And today we come to the conclusion. So even if I don't know you very well, and I, I see some unfamiliar faces this morning, if, if we only know each other as acquaintances or we've never met, I, I'm confident that you and I know something about each other. I know about you that you long for meaning in life because you're a human being. You long for purpose. You long for direction in life. You long for happiness. We were made, you and I as humans, for a purpose, which is why this is an inescapable human reality that human beings are constantly haunted by this question, what on earth are we here for? My guess is that from time to time, you feel out of place in this world. You might be plagued by those thoughts. I just don't know what my purpose is. I don't know that I meet any need in anybody. I don't feel fulfilled by anything that I do. You might be bothered by the, the repetition of the rat race, the grind of it all. You might just wonder kind of those deep identity questions. Who am I? It seems like other people have things that define them, things that they're good at. But what about me? What am I doing here? The question that really drives the preacher through the entire book of Ecclesiastes could be summed up in chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, I searched with my heart till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of life. So we, we could say that's the question that the whole book of Ecclesiastes has been aiming to answer. What are we here for? What is good for a human being to do? Because you only have a few days. You, Greg told us at the beginning of the sermon series, you breathe in, you breathe out, and it's over. And I can't help but think our, our sermon series is, is a little mini picture of that. It just seems like yesterday we were starting this series and it's over. Here we are at the end. And that's how life goes, isn't it? Summer starts, summer ends, and there's another one. In the books, school year starts, school year ends, and just like that, it, it flies by, it's gone. So what is good and right and fitting and pleasing for human beings to spend their 
few brief fleeting days on earth doing? You ever wrestle with that question? If, if you do, then you've probably found a helpful companion in Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes this summer. But his method has been unconventional, to be sure. Right? I almost want to say unorthodox. Not that the content is unorthodox, although people throughout church history have wrestled with this book, like, does it actually belong in the Bible? Does it belong in the canon of Scripture? Because it seems to say some things that just make us all uneasy. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes is going to leave no doubt. It is orthodox through and through. It belongs. You'll see that in a minute. It belongs in the Bible. But the method is certainly not what we're used to. I I, I kind of think of Ecclesiastes like a theme park roller coaster. I love roller coasters. At least I used to a lot more, I think, when I was younger. Lately, last time we were at Universal last year, and by the end of the day, I just felt sick. That didn't used to happen when I was young. But I still pressed through. But I love, like, the theme parks, Disney and Universal, the place where while you're standing in line for an hour and a half, there's stuff to see because you are being immersed into an entire experience. I mean, it's not just a steel coaster for the sake of the flips and the turns and all of that. You are entering into a story, and you become a participant in it, and those parks go all out to bring you in. And now the new ones, they've got, like, 3D Movies playing on the, on the ride. So you're actually moving through a story in the ride. And that, that's how I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, that we started this ride. You could call it vanity. You sit down in the car, harness buckles over you, and as the, the car leaves that platform, with that hiss, you know you're in for a wild ride, and there's this sign as you enter a dark tunnel, and it just says, Vanity of Vanities. Everything is vanity. That's how it started out in verse 2. So you're strapped in. Immediately this adventure starts. And you take a sudden dive. I mean, there's no like climbing up, 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 anticipating. It just, you're already up evidently because we just dropped right away out of the gate. Chapter 1. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all repetition. And so throughout this ride, we've been inverted and flipped and turned around and disoriented and climb and accelerate and descend and... But it's not just twists and turns for the sake of the thrill. There were lights and shadows. There were characters. There there was a plot through it all. And and we were participants in it. It, This book is telling us something about ourselves. And it's meant to do something in us. In this ride through Ecclesiastes, your life flashed before your eyes. Right? Solomon talked to us about work and toil, about folly and sin and oppression and injustice. And he talked about all of life's amenities, food and drink and pleasure and family and sex and all the things that make life life. And he talked to us about aging and death. And he told us last week, you're going to die sooner than you realize. And as the car comes back to the platform, there's that same banner. Vanity of vanities. It's right there in chapter 12, verse 8. It's the banner as you leave and start the ride. It's the banner as you end the ride and come back to the platform. But that sign doesn't mark the end. You you get out of the car. The coaster's done. As you're walking off the platform, there's a voice coming over the speakers, kind of epilogue to the ride, and it's talking to you. The voice is saying something to you about how you should live now that you've been on that ride because the ride was meant to 
to do something. The, the voice is commissioning you, the, the writer, the, the reader of this book. It turns out that this insane ride had a sane purpose to it. It meant to disorient you in order to reorient you. It's meant to change you, to spit you out with a new lease on life. And so turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, to see what this whole wild ride was meant to tell us about God's purpose for our momentary fleeting existence under the sun. Follow along in your Bible or the words are on the screen. This is God's word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, these are your words given by one shepherd. They are goads to us. They are firm and fixed nails. They are words of delight and words of truth. And we want to be careful to hear and heed what you say to us here. So help us in that for your glory and for our good. Amen. So what is good and right and fitting for human beings to do the few days of life we have under the sun? That, that's the question that this ride was meant to answer. And verse 12 tells us the end of the matter. All has been heard. Solomon says, the data is in. The observations have been made. After careful search and inquiry, everything has been heard, so it's time for a verdict. Here it is, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That, that phrase, this is the whole duty of man, in, in the Hebrew, it just literally says simply, this is all humanity. This is humanity. This is what it means to be Human. This is what it means to be a human. What one commentator translates it, for every mortal is to be so. Your purpose as a human being under the sun is summed up right here. Hear God, fear God, obey God. That's what it means to be human. That's how to fulfill your purpose. Listen to God alone. Fear God alone. Obey God alone. It's, it's rather simple. Almost, if we're not careful, disappointingly so, like, what? That's it? But it is remarkably profound, and it's meant to shape us. Every other creature that exists glorifies its creator by simply doing what it was made to do. 
Right? We, we just look at the trees and we, we feel some sense of awe and wonder and worship toward God. You think about the spring when they're budding. Love that time of year and the, all the trees flower. And I just lament that I know that the flowers aren't going to last long on the trees. Like you drive through the McKinnon Park area and it's beautiful for like two days. And then a gust of wind comes through. We have one windy day and the flowers are gone. But for that moment, those, those two days that the flowers are out, I just think, aren't we aware of the glory of God? And what are the trees doing? Just doing what trees do. They put out their buds and they flower and they have leaves. And then in the fall here when they start to change colors, we all talk like, wow, it's beautiful and isn't God good? And we just, what are they doing? They're just being trees. They're just doing what trees do. Birds, they just glorify God when they fly and they soar and fish when they swim and the creeping things when they creep. And BBC can come up with hours and hours and hours of programming just watching the animals do what animals do. And we just go, wow, what a glorious creator. But you and I, as humans, it's a little different. I mean, unlike trees or rivers or rocks or animals, we, because of Adam, are born into sinful rebellion against our Creator and His purpose for us. So think about the animals and how they glorify God. You turn on BBC, you turn on the nightly news, and you watch human beings. Another day of life under the sun documented on the news. And it's just sin everywhere. Corruption and sin and violence and selfishness and greed. And, and humans don't just by default glorify the creator. So Ecclesiastes surveys life in this fallen world. Devastating effects of man's sin. And then it concludes with hope. That it's possible for us to be restored to the purpose of God for us. This is what it means to be human, and it's possible to be redeemed and to be human again. So that's what's being held out to us in this conclusion. Your God-given purpose under the sun is to listen. This is where it starts. If you want to know your purpose and live your purpose as a human being, the few days you have, it starts here, listening to every word God speaks. You can't fulfill what it means to be a human apart from listening to your creator. Look, look at how this conclusion emphasizes the, the significance of words, the value of words. The Hebrew word for words is used four times right here in this paragraph. Words of delight, words of truth, words of wisdom. The end of the matter, the English translation says, but the Hebrew is the exact same word. The end of the word. The end of the word. It speaks of proverbs and collected sayings. Words are significant because they inform our understanding. They shape the way that we live. But there are lots of words out there, aren't there? Lots of words to potentially listen to. Words telling us who we are and how we ought to live. Verse 12 says, my son, beware of anything beyond these words. Watch out. Of making many books, there's, there's no end. And so Solomon sought out to find specifically words of delight. He, he was careful about this. He was weighing, studying, evaluating, arranging words, gathering and collecting wise sayings in order to inform us about what it means to be human. And this commission calls you to be attentive to these true and wise words that come from God. He's the source of all these words. Verse 11, they are given by one shepherd. They are given by one shepherd. 
All truth is God's truth. Solomon studied. He read a lot. He searched far and wide for wisdom. And in the end, he realizes if it's true, it comes from God. If it's wise, it points to God. It all comes from one shepherd. We have seen that throughout this series that this book as a, a book we would classify as wisdom literature. It repeatedly points us back to Jesus. Colossians 2, 3 says, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He is the source of all wisdom, and you were made to listen to his voice. Every word that comes from his mouth. There is no purpose, there's no life for human beings outside of the words of God. And think about the garden. The original, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, the thing that got us into all this trouble... They disregarded the words of God. They questioned the words of God. Did God really say? And they ignored his words. There's no life outside of his words. But thanks to God and his grace, he wasn't done speaking. He has continued communicating with his people. And we have this whole book full of his wise and gracious revelation to us. The the word became flesh because God is not done with us. He's redeeming a people to make us what humans are meant to be. His words he's given us are true and reliable. Look at verse 10. Uprightly, the preacher wrote these words of truth. That's the stamp of approval. If anything in this book made you uneasy and made you think, does this really belong in the Bible? Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Doubly sure. Verse 11 likens the collected sayings of the wise to nails firmly Fixed. What do nails do? They they fasten two things together. And they're meant to do it securely. It's meant to stand. And this book has reminded us your your life is like a vapor. I think of the words of um that sound in the sound of, that song in the sound of music about Maria. How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? That's kind of been the question of Ecclesiastes. Our lives are like these vaporous clouds. How do you catch one and pin it down? And the answer is the words of God. They're like nails that fix our lives and give meaning to us. God's word firmly fastens your life. These these words are full of wisdom for living rightly. Verse 9, besides being wise, the teacher taught the people knowledge. Gives us some hope that if this book seemed enigmatic, hard to understand at all, it's understandable. It's, It's doable because this is the preacher teaching others And he means for them to know. It's not just a riddle that nobody else is supposed to figure out. It's meant to instruct us. But the words of the wise are like goads, verse 11 says. So if you're like me and you don't have a goad hanging up in your garage, you're not sure what a a goad is, it's just a, a pointed stick used to get cattle to move. Big creatures with stubborn wills. How does man get those kind of animals to move? Just poke them and prod them along and they start moving. And the words of the wise are like goads. They, they do poke a little bit. I mean, they're not meant to injure and harm. They're meant to help and protect, but they, they might poke a little. God's word is meant to move you. You don't ever come to the word and just read it and walk away from it. it you come to it and it goads you. It prods you. It, it moves you into action. So here's what that means. You, you ever have that experience where your feelings... Or your will just feels immovable. You think, I'm just, I'm in a, in a funk, I'm in a bad mood, I'm not feeling well. 
and I can't help it. That's what we always tell ourselves. I can't do anything about it. Think of your emotions or your will next time you're in a place like that, like a stubborn ox. Yeah, you, maybe you can't move it. So what do you do? You go to God's word and you pray, God, goad my soul into motion. What I'm feeling is not right because it's not in line with you, but it's what I'm feeling and it's real and I don't feel like I can fix it. So you open up God's word. You pray God's word and you let his word goad you to live rightly. When you lack the will to do what you know God has called you to do, you have no desire to serve your family, sacrifice for others, tell the truth. Go to God's word and let his word goad you into action. That's what it does. God's word will satisfy your soul. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. I mean, God hasn't just assembled his true words into like an encyclopedia. You just flip through, you know, anger problem I'm dealing with. So just get out the A encyclopedia and turn to anger. And what does God say about anger? He he hasn't just given us his book in that format. He has given us his words delightfully, satisfying, aesthetically pleasing. The the, the preacher here is like a museum curator. Verse 9 says he weighed these words. He studied them. He arranged them with great care. There's purpose behind this. When you open God's word, do it mindful of this fact that God's word teaches and instructs. It gives you wisdom and it's meant to thrill your soul as well, to satisfy you. These are delightful words and God's word also gives you all you need to fulfill your God-given purpose under the sun. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. That statement is a stamp of divine authority. We see phrases like that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Do not add to these, do not take from it. That's a stamp of divine authority. These are God's God's words. This is all you need. You don't need anything beyond it. And don't you dare subtract from it. Nothing else outside of these words is authoritative over your life to give you instruction and direction on how you ought to live. Although many people will try. Your conscience is bound to God's word alone. Revelation 22 has that kind of statement. Don't add to, don't subtract from these words. It's interesting that Ecclesiastes has that kind of stamp. Watch out for anything beyond this. Scripture is sufficient for knowing what God wills for your life, for fulfilling your purpose No one else can tell you with any kind of authority like that. Here's the thing you need to be mindful of. Listening to other voices is an inescapable part of being human. Listening is what we do as humans. It's not a matter of whether or not you're going to listen to voices. It's a matter of which voices you're going to listen to. How, How should you be a human being? Well, you were made to listen, so you're going to listen. So listen to these words. I think it's worth being mindful and asking, what are the other voices that you are listening to? Where else are you getting shaping, influencing instruction for your life? News, TV, blogs, Instagram, celebrities, friends. Who are the advisors, the counselors that you turn to and and listen to? Nothing is neutral. Everything you listen to is either conforming you to the likeness of Christ and what it means to be human or distorting the image of God in you. So what are you listening to? And are you content with what God has spoken? 
I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face, isn't it? We, are, we, we have deep questions as human beings. We have lots of why questions. We have lots of questions that we turn to the Bible and we don't see an exact answer to, like why God did this particular hard thing happen in my life. And so the response of faith to God's word is to be the kind of people who are content with what God has said. We're meant to come away from Ecclesiastes with, with two strong categories for thinking in our minds. There are secret things and there are revealed things. That's it. There are things God knows that he hasn't told us and things God knows that he has told us. And we're meant to know the difference and be content with that. Can you, can you recognize the difference? Are you content to take your questions that don't have answers and trust that God in his wisdom knows what he's doing? That he is good. We love these words. The people of Emmaus Road Church, we, we love this book. I want to encourage you, call you this morning. Be committed to being a man or a woman of this book. Let it permeate your thoughts. Let it shape your thinking. Just devour this word like one who believes there is no life for me outside of this book. That's how to be human. Second, your God-given purpose under the sun is to fear God. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard Fear God, for this is the whole duty of man. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable using the language, the fear of God, or to speak that way. He's a God-fearing man. I'm a God-fearing person. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because we know, well, Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God. So is there any place left for fear? First John tells us, Fear has to do with punishment. So where love is perfected, there's no fear. Is it right for us to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? Well, as Ecclesiastes uses this phrase, fearing God means knowing and feeling that God is God and you are not. And it's right for all of us to have that in our minds all the time. God is God. I'm not. We have seen these clear God-established boundaries again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. What I like the language of Cornelius Van Til. He calls it the creator-creature distinction. There's God, and then there's everything else, and there is a sharp line between because nothing and no one is like God. Nothing is like God. He is transcendent. He is all alone in his godness. Ecclesiastes 3.11, if you remember, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that man cannot find out what God has done. Ecclesiastes 8.17, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. 11.5, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. These are God-established boundaries, and they have a purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.14 tells us what that purpose is. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. God means for his creatures to relate to him in this way. The, the fear of God is what your soul feels when you rightly perceive that God is high and exalted. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is glorious. He is God. And you're not chapter 5 verse 2 reminds us God is in heaven and you are on earth God is in heaven you are on earth therefore 
let your words be few. Just fear God. Revere God. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. That's the first thing to know, that he is God. Fearing God like this means worshiping God. I'm mindful. It's warm in here. I think some other people feel a little bit warm. I think we flipped the air back on, but it hasn't turned back on, so we're hoping that it comes back soon, so bear with us. Fearing God means worshiping God. In the Hebrew language, there's a link between the fear of God and, and, and worshiping God. The Hebrew word for worship literally means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to, to fall down before someone else as a literal physical expression. You are above me. I, I lay down before you because I'm low and you are high. That's what worship is. All of worship is an expression. You are above me. I revere you. I honor you. I'm in awe of you. And I'm aware of the, the difference between us. All of worship involves that. Second Kings 17 The Lord made a covenant with his people and he commanded them. Listen to the connection between fear and bowing down, worshiping. You shall not fear other gods or bow down before them to serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall offer sacrifice. To fear God is to worship him as God. And again, just like listening is inescapable, worship is inescapable. Fearing is inescapable. We were made as humans to fear. This is not like you may fear if you want to or you may not. No, you do. You do revere things. You do honor things. That's why we are, as human beings, constantly drawn to anything that we perceive as bigger and more awesome than us. I mean, it could be uh, an athletic feat that we just go, I am in awe of that because I, I, I have some sense of the skill it takes and I know I can't do that and that just blows my mind. I, I revere that. I am in awe of that. Or it might be for you, nature, being up on a mountain or standing at the, the coast, looking out at the expanse of the ocean. You, you just have some sense, that is big, and I'm really small, and I kind of like the feeling I get when I'm reminded of how big this world is. Or if you're way up in northern Minnesota looking at the stars and you just are mindful of the galaxies around us and you're just tiny place in it. Anytime you have that feeling that something else is bigger and better than you are, you're feeling what our souls were made to feel. The question is, where are you looking to feel that? You will, because you're human and you were made to. Where are you looking? The problem is, when we don't fear God, we treat God like he is what David Wells calls weightless. Listen to this. It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, like he's, he is some airy, delicate substance, but rather that he has become, in our minds, unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Let me read that again. God rests upon the world, that is on the, the consciousness of mankind, so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency, his importance, his relevance 
for human life. Those who assure the pollsters that, oh yeah, they, they believe in God, they're religious people, they believe in God's existence, they may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. That's weightlessness. So does God have any weight, any weightiness in your mind? The preacher has reminded us in this book, all is vanity. Your life is a vapor. It's just like a smoke. Everything is a mist. That food you eat, the pleasure you enjoy, it's just a mist. Everything is a vapor except God. God is the only thing that exists that is not a vapor. The Hebrew word translated glory actually has about it this sense of heaviness, weightiness. So when the Bible says, speaks of God's glory, it, it means his, his figurative weightiness. God is weighty. And your soul was made to feel the weight of God's glory, the way your eyes were made to see and perceive beautiful sights, and your ears were made to hear and perceive melody. If you are to find any meaning or purpose in your life, any joy in this vapor under the sun, it, it can't come from some other fleeting weightless thing. It has to come from you feeling the weight of God. And lastly, your God-given purpose under the sun is to obey God. Chapter 12, verse 13, again, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is humanity. This is what it means to be human. Fear God and keep his commands. And those two things, you actually can't divide them. In fact, fear and keep... I think, I'm convinced, that phrase here is a reference to the entire book of Deuteronomy. That phrase, fear God, keep his commandments, fear God, keep his commandments, is repeated five times throughout the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is reminding the people of Israel about God's word to them before they enter into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, 6, you keep God's commands by fearing him. In Deuteronomy 6, 2, you fear him by keeping his commandments. The order is flipped. That is, no one who fears God fails to obey him. You can't fear him and disobey him. And no one can actually rightly obey him without fearing him. You can't just check it off as some external compliance without a heart attitude that fears God. And, and that's the game changer for me in Deuteronomy. Every single place where Deuteronomy speaks of fearing and keeping, fear God, keep his commandments, every single place, it also speaks of the heart in the immediate context. That was a big deal to me this last week when I was walking through Deuteronomy, looking at all these passages, and I noticed one of them was talking about the heart. I thought, I, I noticed another one was talking about the heart. So I thought, I wonder if all of these places do. Went to every place in Deuteronomy where it speaks of fear God and keep his commandments, and every single one also in the immediate context addresses the heart condition. That means fearing and keeping is a summary of the heart condition that pleases God. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.29. This is God speaking. Oh, that they had such a heart as this, always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God says, people who fear and keep, those are people who have a certain kind of heart. And God says, oh, that they might have this heart always. Or Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What's his purpose for you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Fear God and keep God with all your heart. That's a shorthand summary of a heart condition. And I think that's crucial for us to see because it removes a, a huge obstruction that could keep you from hearing what God is saying here. I think that a lot of evangelicals in America today would have a tendency to read Ecclesiastes 12:13 and say, fear and obey, that's the Old Testament. That's not relevant to us. That's law. That's legalism. We are in grace. There's no place for fearing God and keeping his commands. And so they would throw out this summary, this beautiful summary in the book of Ecclesiastes about the entire purpose of what it means to be human. The, the word obey or keep God's commandments it makes so many people squirm because they think that obedience is synonymous with legalism, but it's not. L- let me put it to you this way. Legalism is any billable service you think you render to God. Okay? Any billable service, anything you do where you think, you know, I, I could send a bill to God for that. He owes me now. Anything you do that you think, now I deserve something from God. When you relate to God and your obedience, you view it as a billable service. That's legalism. And that was Israel's problem. Obeying God is not legalism. Obeying God as if now he owes you is the problem. Romans 9, Paul says, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching it. Why? Because they were trying to obey? No, because they lacked the heart that is necessary to obey in the right way. Paul says in verse 32, why did they fail to reach it? Because they did not pursue it, here's the key, by faith. Obedience is not the problem. Obedience without faith is the problem. But obedience that comes from faith, that's right. That's right and pleasing to God. They pursued it as if it were based on their own works, and so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And Ecclesiastes leaves, no doubt in our mind, You can't bill God for your work. Chapter 9, verse 2. It's the same for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to the one who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. You can be religious. It doesn't guarantee you the kind of life you're trying to manipulate from God. You can't bill him for your works, but you can obey him by faith. So when Ecclesiastes and Deuteronomy speak of fearing and keeping, try substituting the New Testament language, trust and obey. Trust, believe, trust and obey. Don't just jump into obedience, trust and obey. Obedience, is, it comes from true faith. The New Testament language is the obedience of faith. Paul says that in Romans 1.5 and at the end of the book, Romans 16.26 obedience that comes from faith is not legalism. I think Noah is maybe the best image of this. In a nutshell, Hebrews eleven seven. Listen to the listen for faith and fear and obedience in one. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Don't, don't make any mistake here. The righteousness he had came by faith. In the Old Testament, by faith. And it was in reverent fear of God that he obeyed God by faith. By faith, in reverent fear, Noah built the ark and obeyed. 
That's how to relate to God. And like listening and like worshiping and fearing, it's not a matter of whether you're going to obey something, it's a matter of what you're going to obey. Steve Fuller says, whatever I trust the most to satisfy me, that's the thing I desire the most. And whatever I desire the most, that's what I obey. Whatever you fear, whatever you worship, whatever you revere, that's what you obey. So what are you obeying? Here's how you can tell. What passions and desires and urges do you tend to give into? Let me just reframe that for you. When you give into passions and desires and urges, you are obeying them. Think of that as obedience. If it's your, your maybe temper reaction to some unpleasant situation, you are obeying the urge to react in anger. Maybe just with your words, blurting it out. Proverbs says that a fool expresses his exasperation. <laughs> what are you obeying? What, with your words, what are you obeying? With your eating, what are you obeying? With your TV watching, with your golfing and shopping and Xbox playing and just with all of life, what are you obeying? You're a human. That means you were made and designed by God to love God and love people. So fear God and keep his commands. That's what it means to be human. And you were given a couple days under the sun to do that. The problem is you and I have all failed. Failed to listen to God. Failed to fear God. Failed to honor him and walk in his ways. So we've become distorted versions of what it means to be human. And the very last phrase of this book reminds us God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's a judgment day coming, and you and I are going to stand there. This is a message that we want to remind each other of constantly, and we want the whole city of Sioux Falls to know that judgment is not the final word. Not only has this one shepherd spoken, this one shepherd became a man. He took on humanity. He became one of Adam's race. And he perfectly fulfilled the whole duty of man. He listened to the Father at all times. He honored and revered and trusted and treasured the Father with every thought that he had and with every action and at every moment and in all of his suffering and his poverty and his humiliation and in his endurance of injustice. And he perfectly obeyed the Father. Always. So we can look at Jesus and take this phrase in Ecclesiastes and say, He is all humanity. He is what humanity is meant to be. He is the whole duty of man. And yet, God brought him into judgment for every evil deed that you committed. The true shepherd laid down his life. The, the shepherd became the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And so because of Jesus, your sins, your failure to listen to God, your failure to honor and revere God, your failure to obey God, all of that can be forgiven and you need not fear God's wrath. But you can walk in newness of life. Once again, restored to all humanity, listening, trusting, obeying God. So turn to Jesus, repent, and believe, and take that message to the world with joy. It's possible to be human again in Jesus, who is for us perfect humanity. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
thank you for speaking to us and answering the, the deepest questions of our souls in your word. Questions about our purpose. Give us the, the faith to receive your word with contentment and to know we have to be careful because our hearts often long to go beyond what you've spoken to us, but you have spoken to us enough. Your words are sufficient for us. It's enough for us to know that we are to listen to you and trust you and obey you. So give us that contentment and thank you for sending your son Jesus to fulfill all humanity, that in union with him we can be restored to once again know you and trust you and fear you and worship you, delight in you, obey you. God, fill this church with people who love your word, worship you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, walk in your ways, and make known among this city what it looks like. Make, make us a picture, like a movie trailer of your new humanity on earth. And thank you for all the pleasures you give us under the sun. In Jesus' name, amen.